<clears throat> sometimes when you leave the pressure cooker of being in the middle of uh, a class, you have insights. You know, like when you're walking to the bathroom um, or, you know, some just getting your body moving and, and, and changing posture. Sometimes something will come to you that is in the form of an insight. So let's take a moment. Are, anybody have an insight during the break that you'd like to share? Yes, please. I'm aware that, like, you're ringing the bell. Listening is kind of <coughs> what's being said, and then there's this reverberation. And so I'm watching what reverberates. Mm. Mm. Nice, really nice analogy. Mm -hmm. What reverberates? Beautiful. What else? <coughs> Please. So one of the things that I came to me uh, was I don't trust people when they talk. And it's kind of a long history. I have this trust thing. Mm -hmm. um, and that gets in the way of my listening. Mm-hmm. Good. So thank you. Um, that's really helpful to take this one step deeper. So <clears throat> just let's, let's explore a little bit. If we were friends, if we were um, willing to be intimate with each other, intimate, um, the Latin word um, intire means uh, interior. So when you're intimate with somebody, you're exposing your interior. And um, one of the reasons why um, listening is such a difficult uh, task is because we're, 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 we're being bombarded with our own story. You know, we're listening to our own responses to the world. And um, there's a, I'm, right now I'm reading a book by the psychiatrist Mark Epstein who also has been a Buddhist practitioner for about 35 years. It's called The Trauma of Everyday Life. Um, and uh, in the book, the point that Epstein makes is that nobody gets through childhood without trauma. And he uses the Buddha's experience of losing his mother within the first seven days of his life as his original trauma that he then had to um, own, he had to explore, he had to process um, through his lifetime to be able to experience enlightenment. And um, the point Epstein makes is that we're all walking around with these wounds that we tend to disassociate from and that when we become mindful we begin to, they begin to arise. Um, meditation is the practice of recovering what was lost. You know, whether it, what, what was lost is, I don't, how many of you saw the movie Lucy? Um, uh, this is the, the movie that, um, um, it, 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 it provides the premise that what would it be like if we were 100% conscious, if we were using 100% of our intelligence? Um, and uh, Scarlett Johansson plays this woman who um, discovers what that's like. Um, and one of the things that is so interesting about the movie is that if you're a 
Buddhist practitioner, as you're watching it, you notice basically what's happening to her is that she's coming fully into her, her full self. Like we're not, we, we have so much that's, that's locked up in these areas that we disassociate from and that part of the, the, the courage in becoming a good listener is that you face what it is that you've been disassociating from. And one thing that many of us experience in our life is or are that people are not trustworthy. How many of you have ever had that experience that people are not trustworthy? (laughs) (laughs) And, And don't you think you're walking around with that? I mean, isn't that part of the projection that we bring in listening, that there's a level of guardedness that we have developed that is appropriate? Right? That, that not everybody practices mindfulness. <laughs> you know, not everybody um, is committed to authenticity or truthfulness. That there are many, many people who are so disassociated from their true self that they're walking around and that they act as an enemy, you know, act in, as in a way that betrays your confidence or leaves you disappointed. That's, that's reality. But what's important is not that that's so. What's important is how do you relate to it? Because if the way you relate to it is to enter into it as an enemy, now you're colluding with that state. You know, you're, you're becoming the person who they are and you're acting in a way that is um, resonant with the state that they're creating. And is that really what you want to do? Especially when you think about conflict, that um, one of the characteristics of conflict is that people tend to become reptiles. You know, that we tend to um, jump from mammalian or neocortex brain right to, well, I'll kill you. (laughs) You know, or I'll get away as far as, you know, as far as fast as I can. And that might be useful. I mean, you know, it might be situations where it's absolutely appropriate for you to go for the jugular. Uh, might be of times when it's a completely appropriate for you to run, but most of the time they're not really doing it intentionally, and it's probably not a good idea to respond in the way that they're responding. And so it requires this tremendous amount of courage to just look at your own reactions and to face them. And what Epstein says is that the practice of mindfulness and of the concomitant practices of metta, friendliness, and karuna, compassion, are absolutely necessary for being a good listener because without them, you're basically responding from places that you would prefer not to. So when you raise this, Tom, it it really, um, you know, what it brought up for me is that <clears throat> part of the, part of the um, maturing as a listener 
is recognizing our own patterns. So let me just talk for a few minutes about the Dharma and listening, and then we'll do another exercise. Um, in preparing for this, uh, of course, I was meditating on the question, you know, how is listening connected to the Dharma? And a couple of things occurred to me. One of them is that in the practice of listening, that if you are keeping your attention over here, that one of the ways that you can practice is to notice the, from the perspective of the four foundations. So here you are, you're, you're listening. Right? So here's some opportunities for practice. So one opportunity for practice is noticing the state of your breathing. If you want to gain insight into how you're listening, there's no better way than to notice your breathing. Because your breathing is a reflection of are you relaxed or have you gone into fight or flight? Right? If your breathing is shallow, constricted, <clears throat> rapid, and you're listening. I'm, I'm saying, of course, you're not running a marathon, but if your breathing is you know, and the, like that, then probably you're experiencing anxiety or some kind of a reaction. And so your breath is a way of, of checking right in. And so when you're doing these dyads, or when we get into you know, small groups, one practice for keeping your attention here, some is noticing the breath. I think it's the simplest. Um, there are a number of other ways that you can bring the four foundations in, but the breath is probably the most direct. So let me just stop. Any questions or comments about that? How many of you, is there anybody that's not familiar with the four foundations? I'm sorry, I didn't even ask that question. Okay, so um, in insight meditation, which is what we practice here, um, and Theravada Buddhism specifically, the primary practice in retreats is what's called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. So the Buddha said that the way you establish foundations that you can then build upon for mindfulness is that you're mindful of the breath and the body, noticing the body, noticing sensations, you're mindful of, and now let me add to the second, and I'll, I'll go through the four foundations. So the first one is the breath body. The second is being aware of what's called the emotional tone that you're listening from. So emotional tone is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. So this is very powerful when you're listening to be aware of the emotional tone that you're listening from. So how many of you can identify when you are listening and the tone in your, in your experience, in your you know, own direct experience is pleasant? How many of you know when it's pleasant? How many of you know when it's unpleasant? How many of you know when it's neutral? It's neither pleasant or unpleasant. Okay, so... Why is it important? Well, emotional tone is the basis of reactivity. 
emotional tone is the basis of reactivity. So if something is pleasant in your experience, then you want more of it. So we give cues to people when it's pleasant. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> pleasant motivates us to want more. So that's interesting because, yes, please. At this point, are you distinguishing listening from mind as opposed to from heart? That there's a, a, a different sense that, that I know about when, when I'm experiencing somebody from here and from here. I'm not making that distinction, thank you. Um, in fact, I'd rather not uh, separate mind and heart. Um, because in fact, the way that we function is that mind and heart are constantly in tandem. We just happen to have more attention or awareness of one or the other. So how this might play out with regard to pleasant is that we might have an, an experience of pleasantness here and then a thought that arises as a result of the pleasantness here. Or we might have a pleasant thought, oh, this is really enjoyable, and then feel it here. But at some point, they're going to be in tandem. So just to continue, so if pleasantness arises when you're listening to somebody, then you're going to tend to stick with it. You're going to tend to want more of it. But what happens when unpleasantness arises? Right? Where's, where does unpleasantness lead? What's the reaction? Not, not yeah, not wanting to listen. It's called aversion. And, and in extreme form, it's hatred. So aversion and hatred are same, same different flavors. So <clears throat> we can begin to have enormous influence over our reactions by noticing pleasant and unpleasantness. Because when something is perceived by us as unpleasant, we tend to want to go the other way. Or push against them. Get away. And so then, if you look at the root cause of where breakdowns occur between people, one place where the, the root of the breakdown is in our emotional tone in response to the external world. Joseph um, Goldstein um, said that the importance about neither pleasant nor unpleasant is that we, it's too subtle for us to notice the, the neutral and so what happens is that we tend to lapse into pleasantness or unpleasantness. That we go quickly from neither this nor that to one of those states because we, our, our, our perception is not refined enough to notice when something is just neutral. Uh, I wonder about boredom. Because it happens a lot when I listen to people. And I wonder if that is neutral or if that's unpleasant. And, and so just listening to you, um, what do you think? 
Well, let's just let's turn it over to the experts here. <laughs> How many of you would say, well, yes, please. No, I was just say that I think it's, it's unpleasant. How many of you would say that boredom is an unpleasant tone? Yeah. So um, I would concur. Um, I, I would concur with that. But what's probably more important is that the Buddha um, said quite clearly that boredom was aversion. It's pulling away. I mean, boredom is the exact opposite of engagement. It's like restlessness or something. Restlessness. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that people experience it, but the point is that boredom is not neutral. Yes? The mind wanders before you even notice what it is. So mm -hmm. if you're not engaged by what the other person's talking about, you discover five minutes later that you've been thinking about something else. The whole, you know, it's mm -hmm. like you don't even catch. You're gone. You know why that is? Anybody? Anybody um, know the science behind that? Supposedly, we have we have thoughts at a hundredth of a second. So. Yeah, so that's about choice making. That's about decisions. The, um, in, in the neuropsychology is that the mind, brain, processes information 67 times faster than a person can speak. So it's, the race is done. <laughs> you know? The mind is so much faster than the spoken word. And so, of course, what we're doing is we're filling up empty space. But what's the alternative? The alternative is to use the excess capacity. That's, that's essentially what you have, is you have excess capacity. You have way more capacity to process than somebody telling you anything, unless it's incredibly interesting or, you know, absolutely delightful, your attention's going to wander. So what do you do with the excess capacity? Well, what you do is you use it to be mindful. You, you, know, you, you will never waste capacity if you, you keep on bringing your attention back to observing these four foundations. First foundation is breath body. Second foundation is emotional tone. Third is um, the, the, the realm of thinking. So, boy, that is like takes a lot of capacity to notice what you're thinking. It's like, <clears throat> imagine for a moment that if you were really being a great listener, you would have so much attention on the other person that they would feel completely held with care, concern, compassion, kindness, curiosity. They'd look over there and they'd say, oh, I know this person's really interested in me. And that you would also be tracking what's going on inside of me. How am I reacting? What's my response? And some of the response that you're going to be observing is sentences and paragraphs and pages and books and volumes of 
stories that you're making up on the fly in the conversation with that person. And you don't even know you're doing it. judgment about boredom before we've allowed ourselves to be in a neutral state perhaps where we can be hearing or encouraging another person. But I well, don't know why this is. <laughs> okay. So, so first of all, one of the great things about sitting in a workshop like this is that our reactions are, that's the laboratory, right? That's what I've been saying from the very beginning. So, you know, my having a comment about that is a secondary response to your noticing. The important thing is that you notice. One interesting phenomena is that as soon as you bring your full undivided attention to, to being mindful of what's going on inside of you and you notice that you're disengaging or that you're bored, you immediately are not bored. It just disappears because now you're engaged. So third foundation of mindfulness is observing the thoughts as they arise. Oh, that's so interesting. Oh, I disagree. You know, whatever it is, right? And so you see how much energy and awareness and attention it takes, focus, to really notice what's going on inside of you and not letting that become what motivates the conversation. Because so often, these things that pass through our mind are views and opinions. And that those views and opinions, if they're fixed, are going to have a tremendous impact on the conversation. So instead of it being a dialogue, it becomes one opinion battling another opinion. So if you know, you, as you said, volume, sometimes it's volume, sometimes it's paragraphs, sometimes it's pages. Well, you know, if you're going to be looking at a page of thoughts while you're listening to someone, you've lost your attention <laughs> on that person. Right. So I'm... You know, it's easy to go, well, what's happening with my breath right now? It's a quick, you know, and back to your attention on the, on the person you're listening to. But dropping, if I, find my, if I dropped into what I'm thinking about what the person's saying, I'm off to the races. I'll, I'll you know, I've lost my attention span. I'll wonder where they're, what they're saying now, you know. So I'm wondering how can you keep track of your thinking process while at the same time, you know, because that's two different dialogues you're going on your dialogue with your, what you're saying and your mm. dialogue with the other person saying. Yeah, I think that the important thing to do is to what works for you. Mm. Jo if you listen to Joseph um, over any period of time, one of the things that you'll hear him say is, do what works. Mm. So if paying attention to your thinking is an interruption or a distraction for you, don't do that. Mm. But for some people who are in this room, they have a kind of natural proclivity to noticing what they're thinking. And so it's not, it doesn't take that much effort the way that for you, the breath doesn't take that much effort. For me, it's a little different. 
it's noticing the process of thinking, mm-hmm. not getting lost in the ideas. Yep. You're trying to pay attention. You notice you're off from thought. You just notice the process. You don't start thinking. You don't imbue whatever that thought was with any more energy. And you just go back to, and that's part of being mindful. And that's very useful. Yes. In terms of listening. Did you, did you, ca- um, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. now it becomes like the breath. You're just noticing thinking and coming back. Yeah. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that's interesting about having 40 people in the room is that um, how many of you have done um, at least a nine-day retreat? Okay. And I'm not asking that because I, you know, want to give preferential treatment or that you're special. It just points out that, that as you do training in mindfulness, the maturity of your mindfulness changes and that you start being able to take more in as a part of like what is what is natural for you to be able to be aware of that in the early stages of mindfulness training it's very important that you stick with something very very simple very concrete until you feel that you've mastered that noticing like i really know when my breath is this or that i really am aware of my breath great that's a foundation and then as you mature you might be able to notice breath and emotional tone. The, um, one of the people who I'm studying with is a guy named Daniel Goleman. And uh, Dan, his latest book is called Focus. And um, he, his premise is, now Dan has been a practitioner of Vipassana and Tibetan Buddhism for 50 years. And um, what he says is that over time, Westerners are becoming more and more mature as practitioners and that we started with mindfulness and then the next wave was metta. You know, if you look at the training process, just at Spirit Rock, if you look at the 20 years of training at Spirit Rock, you can see how in the First 10 years, mindfulness, 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 mindfulness. About 10 years in, mindfulness, little bit of metta. Mindfulness, little bit of metta. And now, now there's you know, nine day, 14 day, whatever it is, we're metta, you know, compassion are big subjects. The next one is focus. So Dan says that a person who's developed concentration, he uses concentration and focus synonymously. A person who's really developed focus is able to place their attention in three realms at the same time. Internal, other, and outer. So you have the facility to be conscious, aware of what's going on here, take in what's going on there, and that you're also conscious of the context that the conversation's taking place in. 
So uh, just another, you know, kind of point to illustrate what you said. Okay. Last foundation of mindfulness. And Tom kind of introduced this for us. The, the fourth foundation of mindfulness is beginning to recognize the, how the truth of the way that things work unfolds in your own life. So an example of that is that all of us are subject to causes and conditions. We have been subject to causes and conditions from the moment that we were conceived. And those causes and conditions play a very big part in how we relate to the world. If we grow up in a what um, Winnicott called an environment where there's good enough parenting, then we feel held, we feel safe, we feel secure. We come into the world looking for safety and security in interactions with people. If we grow up in situations where we didn't have good enough parenting and we don't feel safe and secure and held, then we look for situations in which that replicates itself. So that cause creates a condition in which we're bathed and that we tend to relate to the world from that and that if we become aware of that pattern, if we become aware of the fact that that's a habit that we have in situations that we tend to walk into them looking for danger rather than looking for concern or care or um, compassion, then we can begin to make different choices than if the pattern is dictating our behavior. So I'm going to stop and just see reactions, and then we'll do an exercise. Reactions, comments, thoughts, insights. That was a lot, so it might take a few minutes to process something here. Yes? You know, my reactions is this all gets very psychological. Yeah. I guess I'm, you know, I s my fantasy is always that it's going to be really simple. All I'm going to do is meditate and <laughs> and both are true. <laughs> they are. I mean, at the at a very fundamental level, you know, just sit. <laughs> but um, the the perspective that the Buddha had was that the Buddha was a psychologist. You know, he was one of the the most influential psychologists in the history of the universe. I mean, we're just at a point now in Western psychology where we've accepted the insights that the Buddha had as, oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Please. Yeah, I mean, um, one of the things that Spirit Rock is very different than IMS. So I'm speaking from um, having been deeply influenced by Jack. Um, you know, Jack is a psychologist. And um, when Spirit Rock was formed, Jack's vision was that it would be a place where Western psychology and Buddhism would integrate. And so one of the things that has been a very much a part of Spirit Rock's position is that 
psychology, therapy, um, being in situations that are psychologically therapeutic, whatever they are, are crucial because when you have an experience, that experience has sensation, it has emotion, and it has memory. And that if you have to find ways to process that, and sometimes doing a retreat is enough. A lot of people report that they go to retreats and they have very deep psychological experiences during the retreat. Very surprised that they're sitting in this completely peaceful environment with these beautiful, you know, Avalokitsvara and all these images around them. And meanwhile, inside of them, they're clawing at, you know, the, the memories that are making them crazy. So it, sometimes the retreat can be the place you process, but sometimes the, the important thing is to find a safe person and work with the, those things that are lodged, that you've disassociated from, so that you're able to turn towards them more deeply. My mind went to the ways that um, socially patterns are being dictated, which is the pace. Mm -hmm and um, social media and choices that way that um, most of us either make a conscious decision whether we watch the evening news or not watch the evening news just because it brings things in and we have no yeah. control and all of that. Um, I just lost my train of <laughs> But the point that you're making, I mean, the point that you're making is um, a part of the fourth foundation of mindfulness that we live in a culture that has conditions and that those conditions, if we're not mindful of them, dictate our behavior. Mm -hmm. And a good example of that is that if you stay on the internet more than three hours a day and you surf, skim, then what happens is that neurologically you change and that your concentration becomes much less deep because you're surfing and skimming. Surfing and skimming is retraining the brain to surf and skim rather than to look at something and really explore it in depth. Mm -hmm. Wasn't there something about using the ability to read? <laughs> yes. Yes, you really do. You lose your ability to read and comprehend by spending more than three hours a day on the Internet. Tina? Yeah. Say it again. Sorry. Yes, there's similar data on TV. Yes, yes. So where I was going with it, I just remembered, was in how we, how I listen, because I'm a new person to texting, and um, and how how much information, which isn't just hearing, but listening to this context of, um, and this isn't Twitter because I don't ever do that, but just what I'm reading and what I'm gaining from this by listening to. Uh, the person who I know is different than this person who I know yeah. who's different. This and what they're saying to me by this text and how I'm listening to this, mm -hmm. even I'm not hearing it, mm -hmm. is also another way I'm finding I'm listening. Mm -hmm. I'm bringing my skills of listening, which is probably not very accurate because it's more perception. It's not anything mm -hmm. that's face to face. It's just perception. Mm -hmm. But anyway, those are those are two levels of insight, and they're both. You know, they're both important, yeah.
I mean, I, we, could do, we could do a morning just on learning how to deal with the culture that we live in. I mean, it's a very dangerous situation for people who are not aware. So we're going to do some work, all right? You've been sitting. Thank you so much for listening and really lovely interaction. So what I'd like you to do is to find a new person to be in dyad with, pair up with them, and then I'll give you the instruction. Go. Okay, so um, there are, so the purpose of this exercise is to explore um, having binary attention. So bringing, keeping some level of attention on yourself. And for those of you that maybe this is new, practice being aware of the breath. So keep anchoring back to internal awareness through noticing your breath. Now, if you've done that for many years and you're pretty good at it, then you could explore noticing emotional tone. You could explore noticing kind of physicality. You could notice what's going through your mind. It's up to you. But the simplest one is come back to the breath. Okay? And then you're going to have the rest of your attention on listening very carefully. This first round, um, no inquiry. Okay, just take that off the table because what you're practicing is this binary attention. So the questions that we're going to explore as the communicator, when you're the communicator, you get to pick any one of those. And I'll read them off to you. So let me read these off. So one question that you could explore as the communicator is, what's important to you these days? Another question is, what do you no longer find important these last few years? What's lost your attention? What's no longer of interest to you? That's, that's equally as interesting. Another is, what have you learned that has been of value to you? What insights have you had um, about life, about yourself, about others that you want to share. And the last one is, what do you want to learn next? What do you want to learn next? Like, what's of interest to you that you're curious about that you'd like to really deepen your, your understanding of? So as a communicator, pick one and let the person know kind of which one you've chosen. Let your listener know which one you've chosen. And then after that, go and explore it. Now, 
here's the thing about taking a question that you haven't given a lot of thought to yet, is this is an ideal time to do what's called reflection. So you don't have to answer immediately. After you've picked the question, it's just fine if you want to sit there for a couple of minutes or a minute and think about it. And then when something authentically arises, then share it with your partner and then go back to the question. You don't have to keep on going, just share, come back. Okay? As a listener, you're giving your full undivided attention, nothing more, no inquiry. Okay, any questions about the exercise? It'll be four minutes. So you'll have four minutes as a communicator, and then we'll switch over. So the, the listener gives full undivided attention and puts awareness on yourself. Yes, yes, exactly. So thank you for clarifying that. So if you're the listener and you're practicing binary attention, then you're giving your attention to your partner, but you're also not losing track of yourself. Okay? Ready to go? Yes. Yes. If you're the communicator, then you're giving attention to the breath as a way of kind of anchoring and then exploring the question. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to, I mean, as the communicator in this particular case, you have much less of a role in noticing them, but you might. Notice they have a reaction, they have some kind of a response to it. That would be binary attention. You're still here, but you're also noticing there. Okay, go. Okay. 